In tonight's episode, we will be looking at an incident that occurred in 1966, where multiple UFOs are said to have flown silently across the sky before landing in a nearby field, according to around 300 students and staff from a Melbourne school. fifth episode in this series of As Yet Unexplained. Not only was the Westall incident one of the most important mass UFO sightings in Australia, if true, it could possibly be one of the most important sightings ever. Yet little was written about it at the time. As always, we like to remind the listener that within this podcast are the possibility of descriptions of murder and death, and you should be cautious if you find such things distressing. Also, with every story there are victims, so please spare a thought for those who have suffered. The year is 1966. Westall High School, which is currently known as Westall Secondary College, is located in Clayton South, a Melbourne suburb. The nearest coast is roughly 10 kilometres, 6.2 miles southwest, and the Grange Reserve, a natural open space with largely trees and brush, is situated to the south of the school grounds, and the majority of it is still an open area and exists today. Morbin Airfield, which is situated about 4.5 kilometres, 2.8 miles outside the Grange, mostly deals with general aviation for light aircraft, located in between the southern Melbourne suburbs of Heatherton, Cheltenham, Dingley Village and Menton. The Sighting The weather for the day is said by witnesses to have been a beautiful autumnal day with a light breeze. Six-year-old student Derek Weiss got ready for school like any other school morning and left his home to arrive at Westall School early as not to miss the morning bell. As he had arrived early, he decided to head straight for the swings that were situated on the grounds, and there were other children playing in the oval. When the bell finally struck for the children to go into the building, quite out of character, Derek had a really strong urge not to, as the others were doing 
and remained outside playing. About an hour or so later, one of the teachers came over to Derek and inquired as to why he was not in class, and Derek stated that he didn't really want to go to class and that his teacher told him he could instead play on the swings, which of course was a lie. Regardless of whether he believed it or not, the teacher turned around and walked back into the school. Derek was convinced that he had managed to persuade the teacher into believing him, so he continued to play. Another hour had passed, and Derek had started to play on the chain and bar. He swung out and fell to the ground, and as he went to get back up, he suddenly heard a noise in the sky, like an aboriginal bull roarer spinning rapidly. The sound was also accompanied by a clicking static-like sound. As he looked upwards to try and determine the location of this strange ethereal noise, he saw three craft circling the school. The shapes were going around to the left of the building and were getting lower, almost as if they were in a declining orbit. Derek was unsettled by this vision before him, so he decided to let as many people as he could know about it. He ran straight up to the entrance that Mr. Greenwood, the teacher that had confronted him previously, had gone in earlier. In a panicked state, he leaned into the classroom doorway, yelling out, There are these things in the sky, Mr. Greenwood. These things are in the sky. Derek immediately ran back outside towards the playground again, and the objects had started to hover over the grange. Derek yelled out to some of the children at the other end of the sports oval that were playing. One witness, a Terry Peck, Nee Clark, was playing sports with her school friends outside within the school grounds on the oval. All of a sudden she became aware of one of the students proclaiming quite loudly that they should all look up into the sky as there were UFOs to be seen. Terry remembered that all of her friends and herself all looked up, and to their sheer disbelief it really was a flying saucer. Terry described it as something that you would typically imagine a flying saucer to look like. It was a round silver metallic disc, and it seemed to be flying very low over the school. Terry also recollected that the students began to panic and began to start screaming and running inside the school building. It has also been stated that a student came running into the building, panting, exhausted and hysterical. The child was screaming to the other students that there was a flying saucer in the oval, and en masse, the students left their work and began to congregate at the windows and exits of the building. Witness Marilyn Smith, knee Eastwood, stated that And, of course, everybody started to head towards the door and the teacher said, sit down, it's not recess yet, and a few minutes later the bell went off. Another witness, Graham Simmons, stated that... I was precipitating various chemicals in order to make crystals, and I just had to be looking out the window, thinking how to fudge my science report, 
what I saw directly south was something that I'd never seen before. Graham further stated that everyone had started moving together like a herd of animals and that he went where the herd went. Graham also observed his chemistry teacher at the time grabbing her camera and started taking a series of photographs of the strange object. In another part of the building, teacher Claude Miller realized that his schedule meant that he wouldn't have the chance to have a cup of tea at any other time of the day. He went to the staff room. Miller was also a smoker and decided to pop outside and have a cigarette, completely missing everything. Only one teacher managed to see the UFOs, and that was science teacher Andrew Greenwood. He stated in an interview that he was teaching a class when, quite abruptly, a student came rushing in. He felt it particularly out of character that a student should burst into a class rather than out, especially a student that was not known for that kind of behaviour. The girl raced into proclaiming that everyone should come quick as there was a UFO outside. The students began to stir, but Mr Greenwood sent her away and informed the pupils that they were not to leave. A few moments later, at around 10.15am, the school bell alarmed to inform the teachers and students that it was recess. Mr Greenwood considered the fact that the girl could have been the fanciful type but decided that he would take a wander out into the playground anyway, just to see what all the fuss was about. It was only when he stepped outside he noticed that half the school must have already been out there on the oval. Greenwood estimated that it could have been around 300 students all looking towards the south. Slowly, Greenwood adjusted his eyes from looking at the children to studying the patch of sky they all seemed to be staring at. And then he saw it. The grey, silvery shape was slightly difficult to see against the blue-grey autumn sky. Its size was estimated by Greenwood to be roughly two-thirds of a Cessna aircraft. But he had no way of knowing how far away the UFO was. From Greenwood's perspective, the UFO looked somewhat cigar-shaped, except on occasions when it appeared to bulge in the middle. He was unsure if the craft was changing shape or was circular with a bulge that was only visible as the UFO shifted through perspective. The object at times would be static, displaying a hovering motion. Then it would accelerate at an enormous speed, disappearing from view until it was spotted in another part of the sky. The craft was seen to either hover or move very fast. There appeared to be no middle ground. At one point, the UFO disappeared behind a tall row of pine trees that was approximately 600 yards, 0.54 kilometers or 0.34 miles. Greenwood said that a bunch of the kids jumped the fence to follow and see the craft. Witness Brenda Dixon stated that the craft stopped dead in its tracks and then it descended straight down. And another witness, Jeff Holland, also said that this thing went down behind the trees, then it came up. It was like it had become aware of these planes coming in and it just went woof 
and just left them like they were standing still. The craft then started moving towards an area called the Grange, which was a pine plantation behind the school, and many of the children decided to give chase, jumping over fences and trespassing on other people's land. Jacqueline Argent and her friend Tanya were two of the children running with the herd towards the UFO. Tanya and I and this other girl were over the fence. Tanya was in the lead and we ran towards where it was coming down. I lost sight of Tanya. She was in front of me before I got there. Um, the disc came back up again, so I stopped chasing her. It is Jacqueline's belief that her friend Tanya did in fact see the UFO on the ground. So I was given to believe, yes. yes. Um, but I went back to school and Tanya went back to school and basically had gone all to pieces. There was definitely an ambulance on the Oval and I was told that she'd been taken away in the ambulance and that was the last time I ever saw her. One of those school children was Victor Zakrasny. Well, the kids were hanging on the fence there. There's quite a few kids there. It's a high fence and I got up, got up the top there and all you could see is two discs, one there and one bit further away, probably three metres apart. I could hear somebody in the background saying, stay away, don't jump the fence, and so I said, oh, I'm going over the fence. Victor claims that there were two discs parked in the small clearing. He described how he wanted to touch the UFOs, but discovered that they were emitting some kind of heat that he could feel radiating off of it. Warm or hot, and within a minute or so, it just, both of them just lifted up at the same time, about this height, and um, I soon went, oh, that was breathtaking watching that, and then it just gradually lifted, lifted up, and then went off towards the pines. Local farmer Paul Smith also saw the strange UFO. In an interview given for the documentary Westall 66, he stated, We were loading up for market and as we were pulling the carrots up, I looked up and I was facing the object in the sky and um, I just thought, oh, somebody's got some way of uh, projecting a film of something into the sky. I didn't believe that it was really happening. But um, my boss turned around and he saw it and we stood there looking at it for several minutes. Smith stated that after a while, some children from the school came over and they noticed Paul and his friend working in the field. And they noticed us, they saw us, and they sort of took a while to make up their mind whether they would come onto the property, realising it's private property. Yes. And they um, decided they'd come in anyway, and they did. They ran straight over, straight over the market garden, and they crossed and walked down here to this corner. After a while, um, trucks turned up with, um, it looked like army trucks. Greenwood estimated that the object was initially a 1,000 yards, 0.91 kilometres or 0.57 miles away from the school, and that that distance was halved when it was at its closest. The ship was on its own to start with, but eventually a light aircraft, possibly a Cessna, approached the object. No sooner as the aircraft approached, it quickly became apparent that the UFO was about to play a game of cat and mouse with it. Every time the Cessna approached the UFO, it would fly with extreme speed to a new location. 
Eventually, the single Cessna was joined by a few more aircraft, until they totaled five, each one trying to pin down the elusive UFO. Due to the number of Cessnas or light aircraft that were now in the skies, Greenwood surmised that these could have possibly come from Morabin Airport. The craft would suddenly accelerate again, only this time no one could find it in the skies anymore. The Cessnas lingered for a while. The whole incident was estimated to have lasted for around 25 minutes. That included the initial 10 minutes witnessed by the girls doing sports on the Oval, and a further 15 minutes witnessed by Greenwood. Greenwood notes that there were many other stories that were told by the students, but not having experienced that for himself, he could not vouch for their authenticity. He also noted that he was not the only teacher to see the UFO. The physical education teacher, Jeanette Moore, saw the object but refused to comment on the subject. Claude Miller, the senior English master, came out at the last moment, just as it disappeared. Miller stated, I see Andrew Greenwood, the science teacher, coming towards me. And he said, did you see it? Did you see it? And he pointed up to the air and I said, no, see what? I have a very clear picture of him and I remember almost exactly what he said. And he said it was up in the sky. It moved incredible speeds. It, it, it hovered and it seemed to go away. There seemed to be light, light planes. He thought Cessnas, though he thought they were actually checking it from out at Moorabin Airport and they were circling around. After the event was over with, that afternoon, the schoolmaster called a special assembly and told the students and teachers not to talk about the events that had transpired. Victor Zakrasny is quoted as saying, All I know is the whole school was told off. The headmaster says, All oh, you kids are nuts. It's a weather balloon. Ah, uh, don't talk about it. Graham Simmons said that he was prepped to tell the students that what they had seen didn't exist. I was prepped uh, to tell the students that what they'd seen didn't exist. We weren't allowed to leave the school, at least I wasn't. My job was to walk up and down the corridors and make sure that all students were in their rooms. I was walking back from the West End. There was a confrontation between Mr. Sambleby, Barbara Robbins. Barbara Robbins was the science teacher that was taking photographs of the object. And a man I'd never seen before. I thought it was a police uniform, but it was just dark blue. It was demanded that she hand over not the film, but the entire camera. Journalists started to arrive at the school that afternoon, and shortly after that, the police were called in order to contain them. Marilyn Smith said in an interview that... We were told that we weren't allowed to speak to the media in school grounds. After uh, school finished, there was a TV crew outside school grounds, so we undertook an interview with them. Now, I can't remember whether it was a principal or um, a school representative that came out and ordered us to go home and the film crew to leave. Marilyn would actually get detention for speaking to the media. The evidence was her picture and story in the Dandenong Journal. 
Headmaster Sambleby would later state that four Air Force investigators arrived three days after the event to investigate the alleged landing site. They were accompanied by a number of UFO organizations, but there was no official record of the visit. The tall grass looked to have been flattened by the wind, according to one child interviewed by the newspaper. The flattened circles were so blurry that observers could not tell if there was one or three of them. According to some sources, Air Force troops would later burn the area to the ground to cover the evidence, although the land's owner has also claimed that he burned it himself to keep people from trampling on his land. Government Cover-Up There have been accusations over the years that the government had attempted to conceal the incident and prevent witnesses from speaking out. But Greenwood claims that the headmaster was the only one who first tried to silence the discussion of the incident. Greenwood stated that the headmaster gave the students a lecture and told them they would be severely penalised if they spoke about it. And he also threatened the staff that they may lose their jobs if they mentioned it at all. It was Greenwood's opinion that the UFO encounter scared and disturbed the headmaster, who refused to come outside until the object was well and truly gone. It has also often been reported that when the Royal Australian Air Force contacted the headmaster, he urged them to go jump in a lake. Several witnesses to the event have even reported that sharply dressed men in black suits had approached them and warned them not to speak about the incident. If we look back at Paul Smith's statement that... After a while, um, trucks turned up with, um, it looked like army trucks. There would have been about 20 guys got out. We start to build a very possible picture of a governmental cover-up. Smith also stated that 20 minutes after the UFO had disappeared out from the entourage, which consisted of khaki-coloured trucks that were covered in camouflage patches and long trucks that carried quite a few people as well as a couple of jeeps, poured out 20 guys in khaki-coloured uniforms. Greenwood would also hit a brick wall with his own inquiries. He spoke to the physical education teacher and asked her to describe what she had observed so he could compare it to his own observations. She just sat there and said nothing. Greenwood would also speak to one of the older pupils who apparently detailed the occurrence in great detail exactly as he had witnessed. But when he spoke to her again half an hour later, she said nothing, almost as if someone else had got to her and threatened her. It was Greenwood's belief that it had nothing to do with the headmaster's threats, since no one ever took him seriously and he knew for a fact that the student with whom he spoke didn't attend the meeting when the headmaster's threats were made. Possible Explanations On April the 14th, the Dandenong Journal reported that the school will no longer accept student interviews and that the students and staff have been told not to talk to reporters. Some have stated that the statement was a clear sign that there was a cover-up imposed by the government. On May the 5th, 1966, the headmaster of the school, Frank Sambleby, gave an explanation to the Dandenong Journal stating 
that the rush of callers and phone calls from the Air Force down to the Flying Saucer Association disturbed the children's education. Although federal and state officials first refused to comment on the Westall incident, it also appears that very little attention was given to it at all. Television interviews and reports have not been kept in the archives and now live in the dominions of lost media, unless the films were sequestered by an interested party, perhaps the same party that was interested in the schoolteacher's camera. In more recent years, a theory has slowly been emerging that it is now believed that what had entertained the occupants of the school was an errant high-altitude balloon that was designed to monitor radiation levels. According to documentation kept by the National Archives and the former Department of Supply, a test balloon flown by Meldura may have been blown off course and landed in the paddock near Westall High School. The Highball High Altitude Balloon Program, which ran from 1960 to 1969, was a joint US-Australian effort to examine atmospheric radiation levels using large silver balloons equipped with sensors. In the opinion of researcher Keith Basterfield, a runaway balloon from the Highball experiment is the only logical explanation. Each test balloon contained a 180-kilogram payload in the form of an air sampling and telemetry unit in a gondola which was tracked by a small aircraft and had its 12-metre parachute triggered by a radio signal. The theory goes further to state that in accordance to witnesses at the time, when the men in suits arrived, they said to the students that what they saw was part of a secret governmental exercise and that they could not talk about it because of national security concerns. Mr. Basterfield continued, My hypothesis is that the incidents involved a high-altitude balloon, its parachute, and a big payload rather than a UFO. According to Mr. Basterfield, a comprehensive analysis of all pertinent information, including that which was received via the Freedom of Information Act requests, led to Heibel Aircraft Number 292 as the genuine offender in a research report. Despite the fact that official archival papers show the results of many Heibel test flights, the paperwork for the launches scheduled for the day before Westall appears to have been lost or destroyed. And once again, we run into the same problem that we find with many of the theories that try to explain the UFO phenomena. And that is, although this theory sounds plausible, there simply is no evidence to back up the claim. Many people in the subsequent years have stated that the incident was covered up, and that the witnesses nowadays are misremembering the events and or deliberately embellishing the stories. Either way, it doesn't take away the fact that over 300 children and a few teachers witnessed something unexplained over their school in 1966. As yet unexplained returns on Christmas Eve for our final episode of this season... The Ghosts of Raynham Hall.
Links to our website and social media are in our bio, so please feel free to get in touch, tell us how we are doing, or even suggest future episodes that we can cover. Thanks for listening. If you are listening to this message, then the subliminal frequency has successfully calibrated to your mind. Do not be alarmed. I am here to advise you to explore the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is both a written series as well as a podcast. It explores various locations where paranormal and supernatural events have occurred. It is a broadcast on a forgotten frequency. Hauntings, Time slips, cryptids, cults, and more are investigated and examined. Enter a world designed by torch and moonlight. Go to occultariaofalbion.com or search Occultaria of Albion wherever you find your favourite podcasts. End transmission.